You're listening to the Grow Further Podcast, dedicated to helping you on your journey to get from where you are now to where you want to be. I'm Christy. I'm Ellie. And we are your hosts. Grow further with us, starting now. Hello there. What's going on, everybody? This is Chris with Grow Further. We're really excited to introduce you to a speaker series. And we're going to be sharing the highlights of each of these interviews that we had with these amazing people. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome. We are so excited. We've got an amazing show for you today. We are having a conversation with the Kevin Carroll. Now, you may remember him from the conference, from the retail managers meeting, but we get to not only hear more about his amazing story, we get to learn more about how he actually goes about thriving in the face of adversity day in and day out. Ellie, what an amazing conversation we had and you all are in for a treat, right? Yes. And for those of you who might not remember who Kevin is, he's an author. He's an instigator of inspiration. And as he likes to refer to himself, a creative catalyst. Kevin also brings playful curiosity. He brings an understanding of just human nature in general and a lifelong love of competition, specifically in sports, to all of his endeavors. He's had four really successful books be published, and he's worked to really enhance the creativity of some of the top organizations out there right now. You may or may not have heard of Nike, Starbucks, Target, I mean, Walt Disney. And guess what? We just got added to the list, my friends. Um, and he is here today to inspire us uh, to do big things with the life that we have. So without further ado, let's welcome Kevin Carroll. Kevin, welcome. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Do you mind if we actually, because there's going to be some people listening to the podcast, Kevin, they're like, Kevin Carroll, what's his story? What's he all about? Yeah. And I think One of the things that I'll say, if you imagine a childhood filled with adversity and addiction and abandonment and dysfunction and disappointment, right? That was my childhood. And so my father left when I was three. My mom left when I was six. She left us in a situation, the three of us. Um, She left us in a trailer 200 miles away from Philadelphia. My older brother was eight. I was six. My little brother was three. And we had been in the trailer for five days alone. And I'm fed up. Like, I'm, I'm done. Like, we should be in school. School is a good place for us. We get breakfast and lunch there. Our teachers like us. Why aren't we in school? Where is she? And my older brother said, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I know what to do. Let's tell. Let's go tell. And so we leave the trailer and find help in another trailer, explain our situation. The woman doesn't know what to do. And I remember my grandfather's phone number. He had taught us the phone number to recite it back to him and memorize it. If we got in any trouble, tell someone to call him. So I said, call my grandfather. So she dialed the number and I told my grandfather the situation. And he asked where we were. And the woman said they're in Bowling Green, Virginia. And my grandfather realized really quickly how far away that was from Philadelphia. And he said, I can't come get you. It's too far. So He said, can I talk to the woman? They have a brief conversation. She says, I'm taking you to the bus station. We're going to see if we can find the bus driver going back to Philadelphia. And I'm going to explain, you have no money or parents, only a promise that your grandparents will be waiting at the bus station in downtown Philadelphia and we'll pay him if he'll get you back safely. Let's see if it works. 
And so she went to the bus station, found the bus driver, and he agreed. And I always point out that all of this is actually happening in the late 60s, which makes it even more of a dangerous situation. Three three African-American boys are in the South alone in turbulent, tumultuous times. Anything could have happened to us. And the bus driver's white. And he says, yes. And we sit in one seat. We drive back to Philadelphia. He watches over us. My grandparents are at the bus station. They pay him and they've made a decision that my mom's not getting us back. So mind you, my dad's already been gone since I was three. My mom is now gone. And my grandfather basically says, look, we're going to do the best we can for you boys, but we're, we're getting on in years. We're older. We'll give you food to eat and a roof over your heads, but you're going to have to raise yourselves. I'm six years old and I'm hearing that. Six years old. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Raise myself? And so I asked my grandfather, isn't there a playground up the street? And he goes, yeah. I said, could I just go up there and play? I need to run. And he said, okay. Wow. So I go up to the playground and that's where I meet this group of boys. And that was my first safe place was the playground. And so I made a decision on that day after feeling like I belong somewhere that Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep a ball with me. I'm going to play sports because if sports can do that, Mm -hmm. I'm going to play sports. And so I committed my, I didn't realize my life, but I committed my then life to playing as much as possible in this playground. And I played everything, but it was never for trophies, never first place, never for medals, always for belonging. And always for being a part of a team, because I knew I was stronger that way if I had people that got my back. Because otherwise, I don't have a family in a traditional sense. So I had to create family. Mm -hmm. So that's what I learned to do. And so I played sports. Um, I discovered the public library, which was my other safe place. And the librarians Mm -hmm. there um, watched over me in the public library, Ludington Library, right by my house where we grew up outside Philadelphia. And so I call them the divas of the Dewey Decimal System. So those were my ladies. <laughs> oh, wow. the day. They took great care of me when I would go because they noticed I was coming there by myself all the time. Then I met my best friend's mom, Miss Lane, who became probably Ms. the most Lane. important person in my life. I always called her my CEO, my chief encouragement officer of my dreams. I love that. And Miss Lane challenged me to turn my ideas into reality with two simple words. Why not? She would always say, well, why not? You could do that, but don't talk about it. Be about it would be the next thing she would say. Which one are you? Are you a talker or a doer, Kevin? And so I learned about action and I learned about accountability from her. I would later find out that what was really important about our relationship is she was supportive plus demanding of me. She supported me, but she also demanded of me excellence. She demanded of me to follow through. She demanded of me accountability for my ideas. And so all three of those things allowed me to rise above what social workers basically said, you're going to be this, a statistic. You're going to be this, exactly what we expect of you. You're going to be just getting by because look what you come from. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll show you. So I've, I've always had this competitive nature in me because I know that it serves me well. Because I never compared myself to, oh, I wish I was like you or I wish I was like you. No, did I do my best? And Miss Lane taught me that. 
she taught me that. Like she said, so it's always about you. You're your greatest foe, Kevin. You're the opponent you will always be competing against. It's not any of those other things. It's you. And someone may be better than you that day, but did you do your best? That's huh. all you can ask of anyone. And maybe you're having a little bit of an off day, but were you still the best you could be? So I think absolutely one of the things that I learned from early on was always competing to be my best. Yeah. And I think that's what's helped me you know, find a way to navigate these things. And I think for a lot of folks, if you can tap into that, that can be such a great tool for you. I think that it's hard, especially in our setting, right? In the corporate setting, it's hard to flip the script where you're competing against yourself because there are goals, there are benchmarks, there are things. And it's easy to say, why am I not reaching them as quickly as this person or that person? And sometimes that leads you to go faster, but you won't get there and sustain it. You won't get far um, and you won't be able to be there forever. So I think that that's really important that you, it's, it's better to go slower and to know that you're going to be able to sustain it than to go very quickly and, you know, not be able to stay there. Right. Like to, mm -hmm. it's almost like, a, you know, running a sprint or like getting out of the gate of a marathon and like dumping all your steam right at the starting line, you know, you're never going to be able to finish the race. And it, it seems like you've always been able to find those moments that give you the energy and the determination to continue on that race. Yeah. I think we, we, we have this, microwave mentality. We think everything's microwavable, that success is microwavable. It's not. It's not instant. You got to trust and believe that hard work never goes unrewarded. You got to keep persevering. It will manifest probably in a way you never anticipate. I think that's always the magic of you being able to really revel in the moment. It's like, I never saw that coming. I never saw that. Like, that's exciting. That's more exciting than, well, I have these dates and dates and I hit that number and here we go. No kidding. High five myself. I'm ready to do it. <laughs> I mean, that's not, I mean, how, yeah, you, you hit your benchmarks, but are you excited about that? You know, and I think when we start to understand what motivates you, what inspires you, what gets you out of bed in the morning and you know why, then all those other things can happen, right? You can hit your benchmarks, you can do those things, but when it's all said and done, you know, what are you gonna revel most about? Is it going to be that I, man, I was, I killed those benchmarks, I was doing great. Or did I bring other people with? Did I have others that shine too? Was I really, you know, truly being a great leader where it wasn't just about me and getting mine, that my entire team can celebrate this versus celebrating me, right? How did we win, right? What is that um, South African term, Ubuntu? I am because we are, mm -hmm. right? So I am nothing without the collective. I am nothing without the group. I am nothing without the team. Right. And that's I think when we start to think about it that way, 
those days you're struggling as a leader, your team has you. But if you haven't been nurturing that, guess what? You're on your own, right? And no. I think we need to be thinking about that as leaders. If you shine, yeah. I shine. If you shine, I shine. And would you say that? Because we have a society, I think, that sometimes they, th- they say, I'm a leader because I have direct reports, you know, and that's why I'm a leader. And then there's other people, you know, that are out there that might be leading from the bench, or maybe they're leading, even though they're not actually designated the leader on paper. So would you say that these concepts translate to not just somebody that has, is a formalized leader, but anybody can be a leader? Oh my gosh. I always have looked at it as influence without title. So how am I actually influencing and impacting when I don't need a title? And so that's the measure of a leader to me, right? You can lead from wherever you're at, but it's a choice. Like how you're showing up, how you're modeling it for others, how you're encouraging others, how you're having a generosity of self, right? And an attitude, um, how, you know, we, we've seen this so many times where people get promoted but they are, should not have been promoted because they got promoted because they wanted more money. They didn't get promoted because they want to lead. Yeah. That title doesn't make you a leader. It's your, it's your practices. It's your behavior. It's the culture you're creating. It's the way that you communicate. It's your generosity. It's your willingness to be available. And it's also how you envision success. But if you are, man, I'm striving. I want that SVP role. I want that VP role. I want that C-suite and I'm going for mine. And you leave in your wake all these people that if they did a 360 on you, it would be revealing. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of leaders need to understand, you know, title doesn't matter. Right. It's what do people think of you? What are they saying when you're not in the room? Mm-hmm. And What's I think that's yes. When I was in the military, you can get promoted if you didn't prepare someone behind you to take your job. So you could be promotable. But then they say, but if there isn't someone to fill your spot, you don't get promoted. So you started to understand it's not just about me. I need to be preparing someone behind me to take my spot. And so I think that's so important for, you know, folks to understand you can lead from wherever you are. And it's more about this generosity of spirit and recognizing that I want everyone to win here. And it's important. And there are some times when you have to, you know, take the reins, right? And say, okay, we got to get this done. But people don't begrudge you that when you do that. Because you've actually done all these great deposits in the Goodwill Bank before that. So your team can rally. They're like, mm-hmm. let's go. And mm-hmm. when you set it up and say that to them, look, we're up against it. We got to get going. Right. So are you with me? Yeah, let's go. But that doesn't happen if you haven't been putting deposits. Yeah, in I love there. that. In the Goodwill Bank, you called it? Yes. Yeah, we call it the trust fund. Yes. Like when you think about building trust with people, yes. getting people to want to work for you, getting you have people to make to deposits. The right yeah, you got to make deposits. You um, have to make deposits, and that way, then you can withdraw from that. You can call on people, and they're more ready to join you. But if you've been like taking, 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 and you're overdrawn, 
man, yeah. you gonna get some stink eye. They're like, For sure, but they'll begrudgingly do it, but it is not their best. Correct. They're doing yeah. it out of obligation, not out of love for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the, yep, that's where you might get a short term. Oh, like, it works in the short term, maybe like on a project or two. But when you think about long term and whether or not you do the right thing, regardless of whether you're in the room or not, that's all about the number of deposits that you put within that relationship and whether or not they trust you and they know what your true intentions are. And I don't think you're going to be able to share those. Correct me if I'm wrong, you two, if you haven't been present, if you haven't taken the time to get to know your people, the greatest point guards, they know they're, they're at, they know their teammates mm-hmm. and they know where they thrive and they want them. They want to get them the ball where they thrive, no matter yes. how hard it takes. And that's what success is, is the number of assists, not necessarily the number of points. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I feel like many times when people have been in adverse situations or have had adverse upbringings, it can lead them to a, a mindset of like, I, I'm in, I'm by myself. Like it's, you know, I, I have to be solo. I have to scream my way to the top. Yep. I have to be a hundred percent self-reliant. I don't have time for connection because connection drags me back. So what do you say mm-hmm. to those people who might think that, you know, because connection has, or relying on others has not turned out in their favor in their past, they don't go forward and, and look for that in the future. Mm. I think it's interesting. There, you ain't get anywhere you're at on your own. Let's let's debunk that. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. There's just no way. That is that is the myth of the the solo entrepreneur grinding in that room and Eureka, look what there's no what way. I did. It's in yeah, look what I did. There's a lot of pieces to that mosaic of that win. Right. And we need to start understanding you. That's a myth. It really is. Right. What one of my friends said, the lonely hustle is a myth. Yeah. There's no such Mm -hmm. thing as a lonely hustle. There are lots of people who are supporting you. Maybe they weren't visibly there, but they've helped you all those years before. Right. So what got you there? There were family, friends, educators, instructors, other leaders, um, HR people, all that that helped you learn about all these things, maybe your, your, your education, all these things when you went to college, all that you start thinking about, all those people poured into you. Maybe they're not present right now. So no, you didn't do that on your own. So I think that self-reliant idea is such a myth and when you actually start to value and honor all those who helped you you now appear and show up with this level of gratitude and grace and yeah there's some grit in there but it's always going to be that way that you're not doing it on your own and so i've always you know tried to find a way to insist and remind people that it's about grit, grace, and gratitude, right? And so, that yes, I got some grit in me, but I'm trying to do it in a graceful way. And I'm always going to have gratitude whatever the outcome comes from that. 
because I know that that didn't happen by chance. Right. And I think you just answered my question, which is, I think, and this is where I wanted to have some healthy pushback, that there's a hint of truth in the myth. The hint of truth in the myth is that, yes, grit might be more about your mindset. It might be more about how you choose to think, which is that about you? Yes. And that's not the entire story, though. And I think that's what makes it seductive. You know, yeah. for people to believe oh. that, like, it's me oh. because, you know, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself, you know, and then there's experiences that fuel people into falling into that pattern and into that, into that belief, which then does make them become more of an I leader rather than a we leader. And I think when you, and, and, and tell me what, what you think about this, do you think that the thinking style of a leader impacts those that they lead? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, I mean, your thinking style and your approach to how you communicate and engage with folks absolutely impacts your style, but also the outcomes that happen. And when you do win, how do you celebrate that win? Because your team's watching that. Are you propping us up? Or are you propping yourself up? Self up. Or are you even mm-hmm. taking time to celebrate? Because you talked about yes. how like you have to be present. You are like when you walk from your house to your office, you're taking everything in and you're really acknowledging everything that the world has to offer you. That's something we don't do as human beings. We don't take that time. We think it takes too much time. We think it's it's not important. And it's almost the most important thing we can do because that's how we see those um, un, unexpressed, you know, worries, concerns, uh, excitements of our team. And, you know, it's interesting because at CVS Health, I think there's such a culture of like, I got I have to get there myself. Like I'm on an island. So, you know, what do you say to our leaders who it, it might not be about depending on their team, the team that they lead, but depending on the team, others around them that they're on, the, the leaders that are going through the same exact thing, the same exact trial, the same exact tribulation, the same exact success even at the same time, but they're not doing it together. What do you say to them? I think it's really interesting when you look at what does a team mean to you and how do you find ways to be more inclusive versus exclusive, right? And so how are you inviting others to join you in that quest that this is our North Star, this is what we're going for, this is what we're, you know, trying to strive to get to. And it's audacious. We want it to be audacious. We want it to be something that we sit up in the middle of the night, like, do I do enough to get closer to that? And I think when you start to look at a team and who's rallying around you, let's look at CBS in the target. Mm-hmm. So you're within a larger entity, but all of that plays a role in the success of your part within there. And all that support group around you allows that win to happen, right? So that experience happens when someone actually pulls into the parking lot and then enters into the building and then makes their way to where you're at, wherever you're situated within that building. And then how they're queuing up, all these things that happen leading up to the experience with you. So if it's awful, all that, guess who you're meeting at your window? A very upset customer or patient. 
And it had nothing to do with you, but it had everything to do with you. So if you're staying in your bubble mm-hmm. and you're not reaching out to all of the, of the aspects that can affect that experience, and I'm going to just do me, guess what? Yes, then you're going to have a limited level of success. But if you actually extend out to the entire experience and start to think about that it's an experience. So how do we design this experience to elevate the likelihood of a great experience when they come to me? That's a different kind of leader because you're not taking anything for granted. You're making certain that you're having these conversations to ensure that the customer that's coming to engage with me, I have set them up to have a great experience with me. But if I'm in my bubble and I'm in my kiosk, in my area, within this larger entity, I'm, look, I'm just doing me. We doing us. And they are having a terrible experience making their way to you. You're always going to have these awful exchanges. Why are these customers always so angry when they come here? And is it us? But no, it's all the things that led up to you. So why not actually start reimagining how that experience can start? well before they get to you. So that means reaching out beyond your you bubble. you have to. Reaching yes. out to people you have to reach out to. Yes, instead of actually recognizing that, no, let's actually optimize this. Yeah. Let's look at everything as experience design. We're designing the experience for them. And if we have a specific way that we want this outcome to be when they come to us and when they leave from us, then we need to start reaching out beyond just our group. So leaders that start to understand the effect they can have, the reach and impact they can have, and they reach outside of what they think is their typical um, workflow and start um, reimagining how I can create experience for people. Now you're influencing. And so I go back to this idea, pay attention to your intention. Pay attention to your intention. And if you really want to have this, you know, be known as a great leader, then you're modeling, modeling that beyond just the, your team, your proper team, right? It's, it's this entire experience that people are having before they get to you. And I think if you start really thinking about it in that way, you'll start to see everything's experience design. Hmm. You are, everything is that there's this wonderful book. I love this book. Um, the Shape of Design, and I actually read this by Frank Chimero is his name, and I always actually, before I do any of my presentations, I always read chapter nine, and it's about delight and accommodation. And what I love about it, it says that, you know, the times that design delights us are memorable because we sense the empathy of the work's creator. We feel understood almost as if by using the work, we are stepping into a space designed precisely for us. Hmm. So how do we get past being transactional and being transformational with the people who are coming to engage us in our work? It first starts with us personally and our families and friends, and then professionally when we become our team, and then our customers, the people who are coming to engage us. And I think if we can get more into understanding 
What's that experience like? Family, friends, team, customers, any support around that? Oh my gosh. Now you, now you like that, that's some fuel. Yeah. Like when you start thinking that way and yeah, you can't solve it all overnight, but you start attacking these things and paying attention to them. And you've got your own active practice as a leader first on you. Then you start sharing that out beyond that. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? That's, that's some new thinking right there, right? That's some future state thinking right there. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to part one of Kevin Carroll. If you're like me and you're wanting more, don't you worry because we're going to come back in a couple of weeks with part two of this really beautiful conversation that we got to have with Kevin Carroll. I don't know about you, but I'm inspired. Let's keep that energy over the next couple of weeks, my friends, and we'll see you back here at the Grow Further podcast for part two. Between now and then, stay safe, take care, and grow a little bit further. Thank you for listening to the Grow Further podcast. If you'd like to help us grow further, please subscribe. And don't forget to let us know what you thought of today's episode.